Good morning, and welcome back to another episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. This is part two of our very special two-part episode on uh, sort of a vignette of falls of uh, various interesting characters. Uh, yeah. Well, well, the episode is three parts, but I don't know if, well, anyway, yeah, it's kind of... The podcast is, yeah, we're always conflating episodes and podcasts. Yeah, yeah. It's very confusing. All right, well, it's a three-part episode, but like a two-part discussion <laughs> of the three-part episode, something like that. Anyway, it's, it's all very exciting, okay, folks? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and I'm joined, as always, by the Tolkien maven, Trish Lambert, and the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson. How are you guys? Good morning. We were just morning. having a hilarious, hilarious conversation yeah. there just before... <laughs> Starting just the good. morning it's off right. It's kind of a pre-show. We have this pre-show that goes on. Yes, that gets me pumped. I'm pumped. Which is always, which is always way better than the actual show. <laughs> don't, tell, don't tell the podcast. Well, no, it's that, good. So that's, that's why you terrible. should attend live. You know, so the people ah, who attend live okay. get to get to ha- <laughs> take part in the backstage chat before and after. Uh, it's always a good time. So uh, uh, anyway. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. So, basically, today we're we're kind of really just continuing. This is, uh, uh, you know, in this section of episodes here, as we in the in the home stretch of season one, um, we're really kind of linking things together. This is the first time that we're really doing a multi-part episode in the show. Um, you know, where where we're really carrying over the same the same subplots into into multiple episodes. We haven't decided how we're going to do that yet. Of course, as you may remember from last episode, which I hope you do, um, we're talking about the fall of Sauron, or Myron to become Sauron, the fall of uh, the rebellion of Ase, and the, uh, the, you know, uh, well, frowardness, anyway, of Aule and making the dwarves. Um, And so we're, we're wanting to bring all those things together and sort of, you know, interweave those in three episodes. We said last time that we're just going to talk about the individual plot lines first to make sure that we can really wrap our heads around what we want to be going on with Sauron and how we want that story to go. Same thing with Asse, same thing with Aule, and then come back and talk about how those things are interwoven. Um, which means we probably won't even talk about that today. We'll probably talk about that in our next session um, in two weeks. But this session, of course, we're doing, uh, you know, we're recording this only one week instead of our usual two um, after our last episode, which seems to me kind of. Um, uh, sensible. Uh, it makes a certain amount of sense this time, as we really are just kind of continuing the conversation from last time rather than starting a new conversation. So let's start just by uh, uh, very briefly recapping. And actually, before I very briefly uh, recap, I want to just kind of give a shout out uh, thanks to Megan uh, Frame, who's been doing our notes. Um, the notes that she posts on the web page if you haven't seen those if you haven't been looking at the uh the session notes they're really wonderful um she does a, a really great job uh with the session notes um so uh, i mean i was uh, as i was preparing to review i was looking back at what we were saying last time about sauron and i was just sort of struck again by how uh, how, how how remarkably full and wonderful her uh her her notes are so fantastic for resource. when we publish the book right well exactly Yay! yeah yeah um <laughs> yes uh, megan rocks she's really good she comes up with the titles she's yeah 
Right, so when awesome. somebody publishes the like twelve volume history of the Silmarillion film project series, <laughs> you know, we will have those intermediary stages all set as a way to trace That's the right. development of our someday, thought. Somebody may be using Megan's notes to write a, you know, to do a class or to write a paper. Exactly. By the way, let's also go back to to how Megan became our our fabulous note taker is at Mythmoot. Mm -hmm. She came up and said to us, hey, you know, this is something I'm good at. Can I help? And we're like, uh, yeah. Absolutely. So this is right after Corey made the big announcement. So, you know, she's, she's, uh, it was, we were very fortunate. Yeah. 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 So anyway, just wanted to definitely give a shout out and a thanks to Megan for that. Um, so, okay. So, so quick review. The main thing that we were saying about Sauron and Sauron's fall is that we want Sauron's fall to be gradual. This is not something, you know, we don't want him to be like, I am deciding to be evil now. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's, that's not, um, going to be much fun. In fact, we even discussed saving, uh, first of all, saving any change of his name until later on, um, possibly even season two. The name Sauron might not even be used until season two or at the earliest uh, in uh, in the final episode of season one. And it may be not until the um, it may it may be not until the the final battle that he has to choose sides. If even then, explicitly, that is. You know, this it's because it's not just a question of him working as a as a secret agent. You know, sort of remaining as a spy for Morgoth. He he should certainly sort of be that in essence. But I think more than that, there's a question of his own self identity. Melkor himself, in our adaptation, Melkor himself is not even yet really kind of embracing his role as as bad guy as sort of mere antagonist um he still feels justified in what he's doing and certainly myron is going to be feeling justified for what he's doing too so the lines haven't been fully drawn really on either side um and i think that you know just as melkor believes that he is the one who is in the right myron you know, is is going to be convincing himself that he's doing the right thing, and that, and you know, anyway. So we we want to make sure that we maintain that, and not just have him like decide I'm 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 going to be evil now. You know, I, I agree with that. I don't actually think we should do Sauron at all in season one. It, it can be a big reveal in season two at some point. You know, for uh, those yeah, who don't know the name. You mean, yeah, 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 yeah. And and I also I was going to say to you as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, but you know, at some point we've got to get him installed in the. Mm -hmm, she's going to forget the name of the place where he is, where Luthien comes. But first of all, that's way down the way. When, when yeah, they come exactly. To visit him. And actually, the truth is that can become something. You know, bad guys are are usually lots more interesting to viewers than good guys, I mean, in terms of extended stories. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think we need to take our time with both Melkor and Sauron, because I was also thinking, oh, well, Melkor would obviously become Morgoth at the end of the war, but not necessarily. Not yeah. necessarily. Yeah. So he may not even become Morgoth until next season, so... Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, I, I really am thinking that the... Because um, remember the climactic moment of the next season, we were talking about being the Darkening of Valinor. Um, right. And so that really can be... Because remember, the Darkening of Valinor involves not only... I mean, I've, you know, the death of the trees, obviously, and that's a really big deal. But remember what happens with 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 Morgoth, right? On the one hand, this is, uh, this is his great victory over the Valar. 
But what happens with him in Ungoliant is also a humiliation. You know, I mean, in, in, in two ways. First, his maiming by the Silmarils. When the Silmarils burn his hand, uh, and he's never freed from the, the pain of the burning and the anger of the pain. Um, so he's going to be permanently maimed and in pain after that moment. And then he gets... He gets schooled by Ungoliant. I mean, Ungoliant wraps him up, and he's got to get rescued by the Balrogs. Um, he, he, you know, she beats him. So on the one hand, he, you know, he's like, "I'm the king of the world. I defeated the other Valar. I am clearly the way." And then he gets doubly undermined in this way. So like the, 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 the rage and the, you know, both the. The satisfied pride and arrogance of of you know overcoming the Valar, but then also the like the the anger and the rage and the frustration and the and the the sense of his own humiliation and how much he hates that is going to really rankle. I mean, I think those are the things that kind of combine um, and and you know into this sort of new you know him sort of just basically saying like you know forget it i'm done like trying to be nice i am now like the dark tyrant of the world and they will all you know love me or despair and um you know that that's i, I think that's um so yeah that 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 fall from him to really becoming morgoth cuz remember that's also the moment after he steals the silmarils is the moment when feanor names him morgoth uh, and That's he's right. known as Morgoth ever after. So that timing-wise, it works well too for the for for the name change. Um. Yeah. But anyway, okay. So, so I I generally I, I'm I'm on board with these notions of uh, of doing a, a very slow reveal on on these guys, um, you know, sort of new evil identities and titles, and just uh, like yeah, why why play our hand this early, especially with Sauron? I mean, Sauron is. I think for the vast majority of viewers, they you know even though even though Morgoth is the actual big bad of Middle Earth, Sauron will be sort of the the really great reveal because people will be like, oh hey, he's the guy from the so from the Lord he's of the, the Rings. Eye. He's the eye guy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, that's right. He's the lighthouse guy. He's so, the lighthouse guy. Uh, <laughs> right. How the so, lighthouse guy got his start. Yeah, yeah. So we, so we got a. And I think I think in general, all of the ga- revealing like Saruman and Gandalf and all those guys, like all should be done very carefully because those are big moments, and yes. and there's no reason to do them super early. Uh, well, okay, revealing the name, I think hinting at that could actually be really really cool, like sort of some kind of ominous you know hint. But anyway, yeah, so I, I agree. There's no reason to just come out and say, yeah, by the way, this is Sauron right here, like having an arrow over his head with, his, with you know, actually Sauron. <laughs> right. Like, Little flaming eye logo floating above him, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. During the, during the, yeah, 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 during, during, during the music, actually just like putting a circle around sort of one of the vague shapes and saying Sauron. Right? <laughs> Sauron, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the trombone section. <laughs> um. Yeah, yeah. Right. I I have a I have you know we're kind of getting well I'm gonna we me I <laughs> am gonna get a little off our topic here. But one of the things that I think about as we're talking about sort of the longer term plans for Melkor and for Sauron is you know our our the end of this season will be the awakening of the elves, right? It, the awakening of the elves, or is it going to be Arome finding the elves? Well. Because we have to make a decision about the orc thing, you know, yes. the Melkor potentially stealing elves 
after they've awakened, so he finds out before anybody else does that they've awakened, kind of thing. That's I just had that thought, and we have time to think about it. But yes, we do, um, and I want to. We do need to think about that, and I think when we do, when we talk about episode twelve, the penultimate episode, that's going to be the time to talk the Varda and the Stars episode. That's, mm-hmm. I think, the time when we need to talk about that. Uh, quick spoiler, my thought on the orc question and uh, and and Morgoth's possibly kidnapping or at least tormenting the, is um, is flashback in season two, in the beginning of season two. Ah, okay. To do that yes, in flashback from the elves' point of view. Right. Yeah, okay. Because we're going to, even maybe if... Maybe telling a story or something to somebody yeah, else about yeah, how... Yeah, exactly. How, you know, my buddy Fred suddenly disappeared. I don't know where he went. Because sort of we remember <laughs> that the, the the frame narrative gives us the opportunity to be asynchronous when we want to. You know, so we don't have to. Um, it, that's no big deal. And again, especially if we're changing the point of view. That is, if we're going to tell that from the elves' point of view rather than sort of from the Valar's right. point of view. Right. Um, okay. But uh, anyway, so 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So later. Uh, right. Later, Sorry. later. But, but, but no. I've been thinking a lot about the whole awakening of the elves thing. But I've been trying not to. I, but we've got enough to talk about now. But, but yeah, for episode twelve, that's when we're gonna. That's when when, when we're gonna want to do that. Okay. Now, Karina had asked a really good question, which was sort of wanting us to talk for a bit about further defining the relationship between Sauron and Melkor, kind of moving forward here in the in the in this latter portion of season one, especially. What is their relationship really going to be like? And again, you know, we've sometimes we, meaning both us, the hosts, and uh, and you, the listeners, in the box, have been, sort of slid into thinking of this as like a temptation sequence, right? Like Melkor trying to draw Sauron, you know, over to the dark side. But of course, again, Melkor doesn't think himself to be on the dark side; it's just on the correct side, right? Um, and the other ones on the mistaken and uh, and intransigent side. So, uh, anyway, that's that's. Um, so, what would that what would that be like? It wouldn't be like a seduction. I mean, I think, uh, uh, Karita, your your follow up suggestion is very much like what I was uh, what I was sort of thinking that Sauron's in it. Uh, basically, for him, you know, Sauron's in it for himself. Though I think that there should be an element of of admiration that grows. Um, you know, he first, as we talked about last time, first he's really annoyed um, by Melkor, but then as he sees the contrast between Melkor's pride and strength and Manwe's humility and weakness, at least in Sauron's eyes, um, he's going to admire. Melkor's strength, and even in that sense, his arrogance, like his boldness, his his courage uh, to stand up to everybody else. Yeah, um, yeah. And he would be so. It, it it would not be a question of Sauron drawing him to the dark or Melkor drawing him to the dark side, but rather Sauron seeing things more and more the way that Melkor sees them. Um, and an element I would think of something almost like hero worship, kind of coming in with Sauron. And one of the things that we can think about long term, you know, over the course of the next six seasons or so, can be a kind of tension where Sauron is already, like, basically, as Morgoth kind of spirals downwards, which he is spiraling downwards, you know, his own power is being dispersed, and he's, you know, he's he's winning in Beleriand, but also he's weakening himself personally. Um, I would think that uh, we could see Sauron maybe kind of distancing himself 
more um, mm-hmm. at, from the you know basically seeing himself more and more as like a rival you know that th- that element of hero worship fading as time goes on and him wanting to to to, to challenge and basically set himself up um, in parallel with and then maybe even in supremacy over Morgoth eventually you know that th- that kind of tension would be there on Sauron's side as time went on but I think it would begin with something much more like hero worship and him willing to serve you know, I, I, I could even see Sauron betraying Morgoth at some point uh, um, th- this may be a little PJ of me to do this in terms of you know deviating too far from the from the path but how dare but if, you, you know, I know. Well, given how we're setting this up, is that Sauron then has this opinion of how, you know, in other words, he he understands the cause, right? Like mm-hmm. when he, now, when he's first getting to know Melkor at this level, there's like this cause, you know, we know what's right kind of thing. And then you're right, over time he sees Melkor kind of erode away to the point where it's like he feels justified to betray Melkor because Melkor's betrayed the cause. Right. Um, I mean, right. that could be interesting at some point, which would then makes more sense in the sense of why Sauron would set himself up, himself up to be the dominator rather than trying to get Melkor, you know, or keeping Melkor's name alive. You know, and I discount the Numenor thing because I think that was just sleight of hand on his part. Right. You know, he was smart enough to know not to set them up to worship him, so he came up with Melkor as the, you know, as the as the, as the guy or Morgoth. Um, right. Anyway, yeah, that could be really interesting because you know there is no explanation really. I mean, Tolkien basically, you know, this is established already. Morgoth's yes. bad. Sauron, his deputy. You know, but there's no how this came to be kind of thing. And mm-hmm. It could be really interesting to explore that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that that's. A, I mean, you think about where Morgoth is at the end of the first stage, right? On the one hand, he's winning in Beleriand. On the other hand, it's just Beleriand he's winning in. I mean, Mister, like I am Lord right. and I claim this entire world, and he's now devolved into this. Like I'm just going to beat on the refugee elves and hope the Valar don't notice. You know, I mean, it's it's. You could easily see how Sauron is like, man, boy, talk about losing sight of the big picture. We talked about how we don't want Melkor just to be like a, you know, a, a cackling villain at this point. Right. But basically, he's going to become a cackling villain at the end, and we have Sauron see that and despise it, right? As and because remember, Sauron still has Melkor is going to he's going to cease to even attempt to be. You know, take on an attractive form and do it. He's just going to be like 100% cruel, ugly tyrant all the time. Sauron, of course, is not that. Um, and I actually think it would be really interesting if visually we never have Sauron become the like wicked dominant tyrant in like right. black armor, uh, uh, you know, and wearing metal anywhere until, you know, anywhere until like the fall of Numenor, basically. Yeah. Yep, you know, agree. he should be like the radiant god that 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 others right. worship, um, right. even when he's in the Isle of Werewolves, which would be interesting. And and it, that that's going to be fun, by the way. I haven't really yeah, thought about like this much a yet. Contrast, wouldn't he? He'd be this gorgeous thing yeah. in the midst of all the. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's going to be he's going to be you know he's going to be Anatar you know, Anatar in waiting all along. Can we, uh, we make yeah. that into? Can we make that into something where where he sort of he perceives that as like an exile? Like he got, he's been stuck on this island. Right. Like Morgoth sent him out here, and it's in part sort of a mockery of like the fact that he likes to walk around looking like Anatar, this beautiful guy. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, you go to the, uh, you can go to the Isle of Werewolves, Sauron. Have fun. <laughs> I have another thought on this too. When you said the thing about you know Morgoth's only concentrated on Beleriand, you know we do have, I believe it's the Athrabeth, isn't it, that implies that uh, there have been agents out elsewhere. 
in the yes. world. Yes. Specifically with men. Yes. We could that could actually be Sauron's doing as opposed yes. to Melkor's. Oh you know? yeah. Because he's be so dissatisfied with the fact that Melkor's like obsessed with just this one part that he sends agents out to 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 sort of erode and 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 um and corrupt you know men. So yes, that when uh, that when when. Yeah, Morgoth Morgoth might even depute Sauron to do that. But basically, right, right. Sauron, when he goes out and infiltrates the men, some of those are going to be like the Easterlings. So, like when Sauron, right. you know, comes back to Middle Earth and sets up his kingdom in the Second Age, long-standing, um, relationship. he's like, you know, the god who returns to his worshippers there out yeah. in the East, right? As he's supposed to that. be just... recruiting for Melkor, but really he's recruiting right. for himself. Totally see Mel- you know, Melkor deputes him, but Sauron like like uh, extends beyond his brief. Right, exactly. And you know, basically feathers his own nest while he's while he's going. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and Brian, I I, so you, I I don't mean literally. Well, for, like you know, a few seasons down the line. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, Brian Yoder asks a good question. If he looks like Anatar the whole time, how in the world does he trick? Celebrimbor. I don't mean literally that. Like you know, he would look exactly the same. All I'm saying is that whole like. I am beautiful, friendly, and come in peace, bearing gifts, whole kind of attitude. You know, that that whole, uh, I am going to wow them with beauty and skill uh, and advantage to themselves rather than just try to dominate their spirits and be their dictator. Of course, we know, as Tolkien says at the end of the Valaquenta, he is going to travel down the same disastrous path to his ruin that Morgoth uh, traveled. And so, hopefully... In the minds of our attentive uh, uh, and persistent viewers, when we get to the end of season 16 or 17, uh, and we're in the War of the Ring, the parallel between Morgoth having just become like, I must beat on the elves of Beleriand, and Sauron being like, I must beat on the remnant of the Numenorians in Gondor, should look obvious. Yeah. And the way that yep. both of them have devolved should be clearly parallel. And you know what would make that actually really interesting is the fact that, you know, Saruman, uh, Saruman's, Sauron's um, disapproval of Melkor's obsession will, you know, make him find other ways, like you just said, you know, sort of the sweetness and kill him with kindness and don't go immediately for domination. So in other words, the apprentice is going to try to surpass his master by by doing it differently. I know a better way to do this, but in the end, it becomes the same thing, mm-hmm. which would be really interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that is going to be fun to do. Of course, we're now like a full decade ahead of ourselves. I know. So, I know. <laughs> so but, but, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'd I like to imagine somewhat to, to this these two more episodes because of the fact that we're set, we're sowing the seeds now. Exactly. So kind of understanding kind it's of great where we to know where to. we're headed so that we can have yeah. a clearer grasp yeah. of our character and, yeah. and, and how, and how they're going to be doing. So, okay. So the actions we want to show Sauron performing here, right? He should have at least one or two solo visits to Morgoth after the one where he's there with Aule and Manway, as we described last time. Right. Um, you know, we should have him come wandering back, and uh, you know, he and he and Morgoth can have some like shop top sh- shop talk these, about uh, Atomno and how nice it is. Want these visits to be sanctioned or or um, on the DL? I think they should sanction because there's still a lot of coming and going anyway, isn't there? I mean, it's not unusual, in other words. Yeah, they don't have to be hidden, but but I don't think they need to be like you know 
he doesn't have to report them to Aule or have him sent over by somebody or anything like that. I mean, he can just be coming. I mean, again, I think that we... I would want to depict still a fair bit of coming and going. I know that this is in... That that contradicts... It is explicitly said in, you know, in in the Silmarillion that the Valar didn't... You know, only Orome and Yavanna come back to, to Middle-earth. Um, I want to deviate as far from as the that. Elves know. Yeah, as far as, <laughs> as far as the elves know, exactly. Um, I, I there. I mean that that I don't want to. Basically, I this is another place where I feel that, and it's it's one of the things that I think is important in thinking about adaptation. It's like, what do you stick to the spirit or do you stick to the letter of the story? And to me, it's the spirit every time. If we stick to the letter of this, it's going to be impossible to make the Valar not look like gets. One of the things I really want to avoid is giving the impression that the Valar really genuinely don't care and have like washed their hands of Middle-earth. And and there are times to, in Tolkien's mythology, in the history of Tolkien's mythology, when he makes that look really, really bad. I mean, when, when the Valar really have turned their backs on Middle-earth and genuinely don't even know or care what's going on in Middle-earth. Um... I think as his mythology went on, uh, you know, as he continued to revise it, he got away from that more and more. Um, but um, but he uh, but anyway, it's there. It's the, it's there in the published Silmarillion. It's there even more strongly uh, in 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 a bunch of the earlier stuff. Um, and so anyway, I'm I feel totally justified. It I, it seems to me to be you know if we were to depict them to be genuinely narrow-minded and self-centered, I think we would be doing more violence to the spirit of how he's attempting, how he attempts to depict the Valar, you know, all the way through than if we followed the, this, the, the letter of what he says there. So anyway, okay. All right. All right. Um, so, so here's one question now. Notice the seamless transition I am about to make. <laughs> Do we have Sauron involved in the rebellion of Asse? Is you know do, do we do we actually connect do we merely parallel those stories or do we actually connect those stories? Top of head, I say parallel because I think Sauron should be involved in the almost defection of Aule. Okay, okay. So to have him involved in both doesn't seem doesn't seem. I can see the two in parallel because there is going to be a huge contrast between Asse and, and Sauron. You know, Asse's uh, Sauron's on a slow cooker and Asse's like the you know, hot-headed teenager type. Well, yeah, I mean, here's my th- here's my problem. The biggest problem that I see with Asse is how do we get it started? That is to say, it's one of those things, again, where um, it's easy to say in a book, but it's hard to depict visually. It's easy to say um, Melkor offered to Asse the whole realm of Olmo, um... And I'll say, and you know, and I'll say, agreed and rebelled. But then, but okay, so you can say that. But how do how do we do that? Like, do we have Morgoth go to Asse in the ocean and be like, knock knock, hey Asse, I have a little proposition for you, right? Thought you might be interested. In or do you have him bring him over for like a recruiting trip? Like, hey, you know, come, I'll get you, I'll, I'll give you the VIP treatment uh, here in Utumno, and I have a little proposition for you. Like, how do you, how do we make? this 
exchange happen without making Melkor look either like a car salesman or like a college football coach trying to recruit a high school player? <laughs> like, how do, I mean, it's, it would be so easy for that to, I mean, no, no, no. I was about to say it would be really easy for that to look cheesy. It's hard to make it not look cheesy. So right. how, do, so basically I'm trying to think of how we establish the initial connection uh, between Olmo, or, or between Ose and uh and melko and we have to keep in mind that uh, melkor oh um i have to offer apologies i i'm teaching the shaping of middle earth right now uh volume four of the history of middle earth series in Mythgard academy which is awesome but i'm teaching this the shaping of middle earth and i'm reading the silmarillion for pleasure because it's january and i'm doing the film film adaptation so i've got like five different versions of the versions. silmarillion story in my head <laughs> And I'm going to screw up all the time. So I just called him Melko because that's what he's called in the Book of Lost Tales. And that's what I was just thinking about recently. But anyway, sorry. Melkor. How do we connect Melkor and Ase? Um, well, let's think of it more. Instead yeah. of a, a high school, co- I mean, a college uh, football coach, think of it more like a, a CEO who sees a promising. Right. He's, 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 he's a talent spotter, right? You know, it's like, yeah. I, I think you're being kept down in the organization here, I'll say. You know, yeah. I really think. You know, and I mean, his whole deal is right to supplant Olmo, right, with Ase. That's his plan. Right. Which, of course, he has plenty of motivation for because Olmo uh, uh, is the huge pain in the neck, right? And by the way, the more right. I've, re- I've been reading in the shaping of Middle-earth and everything, the more obvious it is that this has to be Olmo. I mean, this has been Olmo's role all the way through. Olmo is like the absolute rebel. In the published Silmarillion, Olmo is so toned down. In the earlier versions, Olmo is just like, first of all, half the time, the only Valor even paying attention. But he is absolutely the um, the the biggest Melkor antagonist activist against what Melkor is doing, um, the biggest thorn in his side. So I think we're we're, we're absolutely right uh, to do that. Um. So okay. So so his so that that his, his, has to be sown right. early on, right? I mean, we've got Melkor's the, motivation, Melkor right? He's trying to he's trying to undermine. Got to show, yeah, yeah, as a problem from like from like almost every episode that deals with the Valar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that, um, so that by the time we get here, Melkor's like, I gotta get rid of this guy, you know, jeez. Yeah, so, yeah. So maybe the the substance of his appeal to Ase is not only like, I think you're a swell guy and deserve better than you've gotten, but also, um, you know, I think your boss is really off the rails. You know, I mean, like, look at how, look at all the trouble that your boss is causing. You know, he's, in fact, he can even attempt to depict Olmo as a rebel against Manway. Like, look at how Manway is, you know, even Manway is standing up and saying, is trying to establish peace, and here's Olmo, like, the warmonger, like, he's creating conflict in the world. Like, clearly, the, you know, the, uh, the oceans need to be in better, more reliable hands uh, than that, like, fractious, reactionary Olmo guy. Right. Um, so with Ase, it's because, you know, one of the things that I think it would be important, we don't want the we don't want both Sauron and Ase to have similar kind of motivations. Right. We want if we're going to do that, we want to have their stories be different. If Sauron is motivated by the, you know, basically by his own pride and his desire to have his own dominion and, and you know, he, he likes the way that Morgoth operates and he sees, uh, you know, opportunity for 
you know, sort of expansion for himself. Um, so it's basically, you know, pride and ambition are at the heart of what Sauron is doing. We don't want it to be just pride and ambition on Ossay's part. There needs to be there needs to be something else. So 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 this, so why does Ossay why does Ossay fall? What is it that gets to him? Hmm. I mean, he doesn't fully fall. Like he does. I guess we could call it a fall and a repentance on us. Kind of throws a tantrum. He does kind of throw a tantrum, doesn't he? I mean, one of the things that I could see from a sort of a more them- thinking about it more thematically than personally for a minute, um, the 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 overall theme we've been talking about rebellion or fall as the overall theme of these episodes but i would even say possibly a way to think about the theme of these episodes is chaos basically disorder um that's what manway is going to see and, and that's what he's going to be trying to prevent and that's going to be that leads us to the ultimate tragedy in the last episode when basically manway saying okay we have to go to war seems to him like they've lost right because that's that's basically succumbing to disorder Ra- <clears throat> rather than holding out for the idea that everything can be brought back together into harmony so ase uh can the rebellion of ase as simply like ase embracing chaos right um you know he he's violent by nature he likes to shake things up and uh just to have him cut loose and no longer respect the boundaries that have been placed on his dominion, both in the literal sense of the coasts of the, of the earth and in the, 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 the sort of symbolic sense of, you know, the, the boundaries on his place within the hierarchy under Olmo. Um, if he's breaking out of that, it, it, again, it's not about like pride and ambition because I'll say always wanted to be number one. Um, but it's just like, this is just like disorder breaking out. This is, uh, this is letting loose the forces of chaos, essentially. And all in Ase likes the forces of chaos. I mean, Ase's character all the way through, whenever Ase comes in, he is almost always, you know, that kind of element of chaos barely contained within limits like within those limits chaos is allowed to go like you know what happens with the coastal seas and with storms on the ocean like it's unpredictable and it's kind of unrestrained but it does have boundaries right right um so what happens with all is the disregarding of those boundaries right and he's always a little bit he's always a little bit even even after his repentance is always sort of testing those boundaries right yes yes exactly um and Yes. Okay. So, so you know, if if Melkor is going to appeal to him in a like, hey, you know, your boss is going off the rails, and you know, I think you're really talented, and you should take his place. I'm thinking that's not even going to appeal to Ase. That is to say, like uh, appealing to him just to ambition, to pride and ambition. This is what you know. Melkor gets that right. That's that's Melkor's language. Sauron speaks Melkor's language, so Sauron is is down with that. But Ase might not even speak that language. You know, he might not even get that. That's not really what he cares about. What does he care about? Chaos, man. Violence. He wants to beat on things. And he wants to beat... He'd he'd quite like to beat on more things than he's currently permitted to beat upon. (laughs) (laughs) He feels thwarted. Yes, exactly. He's frustrated because he has the limited scope for his violence, right? If he can rule the entire sea... Oh, man. Like, how much more fun would that be? 
and fun. It might even be in like terms in yeah. terms of fun. Yeah, as Marie Prosser says, he rejoices in the storm. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Marie Prosser does say disregarding the boundaries of the coast equals infringing on Aule's domain equals way to involve uh, Myron and Sauron or Sauron if we want to. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, um, and if, if am I recalling correctly? <laughs> Boy, I, I'm so fuddled now with versions of the Silmarillion. Am I right to remember that in the published Silmarillion, it's Aule who complains when Ase is rebelling, and he's uh, he's it's 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 Aule who complains because like all the land is getting screwed up, and he's got to go around and fix it all. Oh, good question. Uh, let me see if I can let me see if I can find this. Uh, where is God of the Maiar? Um, yeah! Hey, I was right. Okay, so... Uh, hey, let's read the passage. Melkor hated the sea, for he could not subdue it. This is in of the Maiar in the Valaquenta. It is said that in the making of Arda, he endeavored to draw Ase to his allegiance, promising to him all the realm and power of Olmo if he would serve him. So it was that long ago there arose great tumults in the sea that wrought ruin to the lands, you see. But Uanin, at the prayer of Aule, restrained Ase and brought him before Olmo, and he was pardoned and returned to his allegiance, to which he has remained faithful, for the most part. For the delight of violence has never wholly departed from him, and at times he will rage in his willfulness without any command from Olmo his lord. Therefore, those who dwell by the sea or go up in ships may love him, but they do not trust him. So yes, it was Aule you know, who gets Those two sentences are like awesome story. Yes. I mean, you've got you've got Unin there as the romantic connection and the influence that you know that brings him back. Um, you know, you've got the the reasoning there in terms of why Melkor would care, which is that it, it irritates him; he can't have dominion. And then Asse's, you know, violence, which you know comes back to the to the you know good side, but doesn't quite go doesn't go away. Doesn't right. quite go away. Doesn't go away at all. Right. That's awesome. Right. So Unin's role. Is basically... We could do a series. We could do a series. You know, Adventures of Young Ase. <laughs> Adventures of Young Ase. Right. <laughs> um, Uanin's role in the story, as depicted there in the Valaquenta, is essentially to bring him back into, not just to his allegiance, but to bring him back within boundaries. Right? right. Um, she, could, she doesn't tame him. In the sense of altering him. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, again, it's another, we get another archetypal thing going on here, right? That's Um, true. Which we have to be careful about. Which we have to be, you know, which we have to treat with the same care that we talked about before. Um, Neither to, uh, to sort of permit ourselves kind of blindly and oversimplified, uh, blind and oversimplified stereotypes while simultaneously not simply blindly resisting those stereotypes for the point of, uh, for the sake of, 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 of resistance. Um, it would be easy, though, to... I mean, my, my primary concern there is simply oversimplifying Uenin's role, right? And making it look like... Making her look simplistic and him look stupid. Um, we wouldn't want that. But basically, what she does is bring him to. And now, remember, Uanin, it is Uanin who brings the storm that wrecks a whole bunch of the Feanorian ships after the Kinslang, right? Uanin is weeping for the 
um, uh, the, the, and, and, and remember, that's explicitly a transgression. Manway says to all of the Ainur, don't let them go, right? Don't, don't interfere. nobody interfere with the Noldor as they are fleeing, right? And Uinin, despite that command, in her mourning for the, uh, for the slain uh, uh, Teleri at Alqualande, makes a storm which wrecks a whole bunch of the ships that have the Feanorians on them. So, you know, Unin is not 100% Miss Boundaries herself, right? So right. she yep. she's not merely the opposite of and complement to Ase. She has some things in common with him, right? Um, so we don't want to depict them as polar opposites of each other. Um, and Nick, I agree. Ase is kind of stupid, and I, 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 you're right. I don't agree. I don't. I don't worry about it. We just don't want to make him look like a an absolute cretin. I mean, it's easy husband. to make him seem almost bestial. Actually, you know, just to, uh, to to be, you know, thwacking things with a club until somebody offers him, you know, food or something. You know, it's, it's if we have Ase be just pure. Um, pure and unadulterated id, I don't think that would be good. But he's a lot id. I mean, again, that's the impulse, right? You know, it's the that that impulse to violence and to breaking boundaries. Um, yeah, it is actually interesting. I don't think we'll have, I don't think we actually have the ability to do this because of our, you know, I don't know where it would fit. But to show Uinen and Ase actually having mutual, you know, enjoyment of you know, creating chaos on the seas early on could be right. interesting. It shows that she's got that same thing, but somehow she she brings it into more control, and then we see it burst out again at Aqualande kind of thing. I mean, to right. show that she's not mm-hmm. really different from him. And in fact, what may win him over is the fact that she does understand him. You know, she does understand th- yeah. that desire that he has. You know, and 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 that's what helps her influence him back. Anyway, I, you know, I yeah. got nowhere to go from there. But. I mean, the, the basic message, and, you know, goodness knows I'm not proposing dialogue for the show here, but in my mind, the basic message that Uinin would have for Ase would be, you know, unrestrained chaos is actually not more fun, okay? Like, if we, we can, it's okay for us to live within boundaries and yet still be ourselves, right? That in fact we can enjoy our our natures, right? Our roles of like you know, the violence of the seas and beating on things. Beating on things within boundaries, it's, it's like the tennis analogy I was giving last time, right? Beating on things within boundaries and within a set of rules is actually more fun than just running around wildly beating on everything. Um, That's true. You know, so that he would see basically his... his his initial perspective is, I like chaos, more chaos has got to be better, right? And Uinen's message for him is, is no, actually, chaos within this, you know, within our range, within our boundaries, this is actually, you know, this is actually better and more satisfying. Um, it's not a denial of our nature, but rather it's seeing the role that we play within the whole. And for us to be playing our role, even though locally... That is chaos, right? Um, in making what's certainly going to look like chaos to everybody else involved. Um, nevertheless, doing that within our within our within our range and being part of the harmonious whole, thinking back to the music, um, is actually going to be better and more satisfying, a more perfect fulfillment of our uh, um, 
of our uh, 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 being. So yeah, as uh, Marie Prosser just said, unrestrained chaos pushes everyone else away and is ultimately lonely, right? And so that's where we can get with Asa Anuanen, right? Um, exactly, Marie. What Uanen would show him is like, look, you, you're to do that, to just lash out at everything and desire to have no boundaries and no limitations is to be completely alone. Let's be together, right? Let's you and I join together and wreck stuff on the ocean, right? And that'll be more fun. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, Exactly. As as Marie follows up, the boundaries allow for collaboration and interaction with others. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And, uh, and, you know, so this can be kind of part of the vision. In a sense, this, in, in a sense, therefore, both the rebellion of Asse and his redemption can fit into, again, fit into the overall themes of the latter part of the season as they show both initially Manway's fears, right? Why Manway is trying to change everything and trying to keep everything under control because he doesn't want things to fly. That's exactly how they could be flying apart. Asse would be like the image of like Manway's nightmare scenario, right? And the message ultimately that Uenin convinces him of is um, is uh, what Manway is striving for, right? That 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 no, you don't have to. It's not that everybody has to deny who they are, and everybody just like agree to be, you know, uh, to 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 be. Fr- but we do need to all work together. We need to be not in unison, but in harmony. Remember, unison was Melkor. He wanted everybody in unison in the music. Manway doesn't want doesn't want harmony. He wants, or he doesn't want he doesn't want unison. He wants harmony, which means people have to play different notes. Um, so, you know, it's okay, Asse, for you to be who you are, just be who you are within limits. And again, and, and Uenin shows that. I kind of like it. I haven't the faintest idea, boy, like, I shudder back from the idea of actually write, trying to write this dialogue. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad that's not my job, but... Um, <laughs> that's right. We can approve it. We can, you know, the executive producers, we can, more importantly, <laughs> exactly. disapprove exactly. it. Yeah, disapprove it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I would not look forward to to, to writing it. But yes, you're right. I, I would look forward to a to uh, to critiquing it and uh, pointing out how it's <laughs> how it's how it's bad. Um, yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. Um, uh, maybe we have. Maybe we could actually depict their initial encounter. Uh, Uenin and Ase? Uh, Uenin and Ase, yeah. What I'm wondering is actually if we have her... I'm tempted to have them fight at the beginning. Like, have him be doing his raging thing, right? His, you know, Ase unrestrained thing. And have Ase unrestrained be interrupted by Uenin coming up to him and beating him down, basically. Mm. Um... Rather than having her coming in and being like, hi, I am gentle female trying to appeal to, like, you know, you to, you know, leave your stereotypical masculine violence and, like, join with me in femininity. Like, you know, that could be so cloyingly stereotyped and awful. Um, But again, she is, you know, so she can be feminine and the joining of the two of them together um, you know, is you know has those elements that we were just talking of of you know chaos and violence, but within boundaries. 
but yet that doesn't have to be, you know, again, not to have her just be the polar opposite of him. Um, uh, you know, she can sort of, the transaction between the two of them in this sense, uh, to use an awful word, um, begins with her showing him, I am like you and your match, but ends with saying, but knock that off. Wouldn't you rather be with me and with, you know, and, and you know, I really like the angle that Marie was taking to basically say, look, you're going to be on your own and just fighting with everybody. Is that what you really want? Like, is that, is that really going to make you happy? Is that, is, 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 do you think that's really going to be satisfying? Um, why not, why not, um, why not be joined to me and be partners with me and still break stuff? Um, anyway, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking... Yeah, she could be like, if you go away, who am I going to break stuff with? <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. I would kind of look forward to breaking stuff with you. Now, now she is more reliable, of course, as uh, somebody... Marie, maybe? Again, Marie's on fire with the Uanin stuff, uh, was pointing out. Um, she, Uanin, is the one, remember, that the, uh, the, the Numenorians hold in reverence equal to the Valar, right? Because she, yep. she can be counted on to look after them, and she does protect their ships, so there are no Numenorian uh, shipwrecks. Um, but... Uh, uh, so she's she's always more dependable than Ase. Um but again that doesn't mean that she you know we we also do see her associated with causing shipwrecks in the case of the Fanorians. So um yeah yeah oh interesting uh Marie I can see Marie you are all over the Ase and Uinen story today. She is knocking it out of the park. She she's uh, she red is hot. Marie says that Uinen should come up and put him in a chokehold. Uh, I like that symbolically. I like that again. It's about restraint, right? Um, and yet, it's 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 you know restraining violence with violence. You know, it's not like calm down, Ase. Right? Wouldn't you like to? No, it's like she comes up and she puts him in a she she puts him in a lock and binds him. Um, I'm thinking probably her hair has got to be involved, right? Uinen has this enormously long hair which extends through all the oceans of the world. So, um, yeah, I'm thinking that I'm thinking that Uinen, uh, uh Uinen's hair has to be involved in the in the in the binding there. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that. Okay, so how's Melkor involved? Melkor's got to be involved, right? Well, I mean, in terms Ooh. of in terms of how does he get to the point where he approaches Asse? I mean, first of all, Elmo, Elmo is like a thorn in the guy's side. He's an irritation, big time, right? So he's looking for. A, Options and maybe there's some thing he observes Ase do or say. In other words, he's not necessarily in in direct communication with him, but he sees him and he goes, hmm, and he strokes his chin. Hmm. <laughs> Possibly. Well, you know, okay. So I would just I just said that Melkor has to be involved. Theoretically, of course, we could make him not be involved. We could just have uh, because you know, in in some ways, that's even more powerful to to show Ase kind of falling on his own, right? Not everybody has to be drawn into it by Melkor. Um, after all, we were kind of showing, wanting to show Sauron kind of coming to this on his own, right? That's true. Um, that's true. So we could just avoid that. I'm thinking basically the thing that motivates me to want to involve Melkor is simply the the letter of the text, the business about him offering Ase the realm and dominion of Olma. Which, I'd be okay leaving behind, I guess, if we wanted to. Though I kind of like it as the whole 
Olmo as the thorn, you know, to emphasize Melkor recognizing Olmo as his chief antagonist and really wanting to undermine Olmo personally, you know, seeing a, seeing, seeing a rivalry. And in fact, that could even factor into Olmo, of course, who's been the, the chief of the anti-Melkor camp from the beginning is of course going to be one of the spokespeople who is going to be most in favor of war against Melkor at the end. And one of the, the sort of the points there is Manway can be resistant to it because he's thinking this is just like a grudge match now between Omo and Melkor. <clears throat> if Omo sees that Ase was tampered with by Melkor and that Melkor almost led Ase to fall or did lead him to fall, though he came back, you know, basically Manway could be looking at this and saying, look, this is just Omo now breaking right. boundaries. You know, now, now Omo is holding a grudge because of what he did to Ase and he's just trying, you know, so right. why should we fight? You know, I, I it's don't like want to allow war just to break grudge. out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and basically the the thing that Manway sees is that this is not just this is not just um Olmo uh versus Melkor, which needs to be resolved by war, um and him coming down on Olmo's side. What he comes around to is the recognition no Morgoth really is the enemy of everyone and the enemy of the world, and if he's not if we don't put him under restraint, the whole world is gonna be is gonna be in trouble. Um, so the Ase thing, you know, having him involved or perceived to be involved or suspected of being involved or indirectly involved does seem desirable for the sake of the overarching plot. Mm-hmm. Is there is there an implication in the the published Silmarillion that that this this event corrupted Ase in some way? You mean like permanently corrupted him? Well, well, it says the the text itself says, um, mm-hmm. uh, let's see, where is it? Uh, in return to his allegiance, from which he is main fearful for the most part, for the del- the delight in violence has never wholly departed from him. So there's this, there's it kind of that sort of in my mind raises a question of is the delight in violence sort of uh, like. Is that natural to him? Is that his natural state? He is just like that, or did this particular did this particular incident sort of awaken a delight yeah. in violence, yeah. which was which was then mitigated but not fully cured, almost like a, a corruption? It's a very perceptive question, and I think to me the basic question that it demands us to answer is: Are we going to say that violence is intrinsically evil, right? Right, yes. That that as well, also, yeah, that question. I mean, that question. Th- that's kind of the implication, right? That if, if if the fact that he remains violent is some kind of lingering stain, it implies that without it, he wouldn't be violent, right? So, so that, therefore, this kind of impulse to violence is always bad. I don't know if we want to do that. By the way, this um, indirectly brings us back to a question that... Uh, uh, um, Robert Brown asked like at the an hour ago, um, which is, are we still thinking about including the defection of uh, uh, Machar and Mease, the the those the two Valar in charge of violence, 
um, warfare and and such like, um, which are in the Book of Lost Tales, but which Tolkien drops from the mythology after the Book of Lost Tales. They're no longer there. By the time he comes back in 1926 and 1930 doing the sketch of the mythology in the Quenta, Makar and Mayase are gone. They're only in the Book of Lost Tales, um, the very first version of it. I brought up the possibility early on that we might want to we might want to do something with them. As we've worked through season one, I'm thinking we don't because we already have so many characters to introduce for one that introducing more. I just don't think we have time, and I don't and I I don't I don't I don't think that I want to. And basically, I feel like we can include between Ase and Tulkas, we can get good violent people, right? Um, and Orame, I know, is very strong in arms, but even his hunting, right? His hunting is violent as well. Hunting is a violent thing to do, right? So we have Ase the hunter, mm-hmm. we have Tolkas the wrestler combatant, uh, and we have Ase who likes to beat on things, Ase Anuanen who likes to beat on things. So we have three different examples uh, already of good guys who are into violence. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore, I think that that's one of the reasons why I'm thinking that Makar and Mayasa are a little bit superfluous in that way um, for yeah. our purposes. Um, so so that's why as, as this season has gone by, I've been leaning against them. But I think I'm OK with leaving violence, the idea that violence is uh, is because I mean, that seems to me implied in the character of Tolkas and Orame. It seems to me implied. Um, that is to say, had Melkor not rebelled, right? Had the music of of the Ainur proceeded according to Iluvatar's initial plan, and everything been always peace and harmony, and no stain ever have entered into the picture, had Arda never been marred, in 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 a totally unmarred Arda, would any violence ever occur? Is, is to me the question, right? And I think the answer to that is yes, right? Again, mm-hmm. Tokus is still going to like wrestling and, and combat. And, and there's nothing intrinsically bad about it. No, no. You can, you can, you can have... Uh, I mean, I think that Orme would be a hunter and Tokus would be a fighter even if there were no Melkor and even if there had been no rebellion. Um, mm-hmm. I th- and I think that we can depict those things as things which are, which are, which are good, which are part of the you know. The, I mean, obviously they're easy to abuse, but everything can be abused. Um, right. I mean, it's it, again, it's thinking about what we said about Tolkas last time, how we were um, suggesting Tolkas could be a dupe up to this point, and then as we come into the final sequence of the season, he can realize that Melkor's uh, actually evil and become, you know, the most bitter of his enemies. That was another passage in the Shaping a Middle-Earth class on Wednesday that I was really noticing, and it was making me think of of, of film film. Um, one of the depictions of Tolkas in the 1930 Quinta, it's a, a sentence in, in the midst of a passage which is almost like, almost just like the published Silmarillion from the Valaquenta stuff, but it says that Tolkas never forgives. Like once somebody 
uh, does something again that he he always remembers every slight that's ever been done to him, um, and it's an element of Tolkis's character that's removed uh, in later version. It's not in the published Silmarillion, but that was part of Tolkis's character still in 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 nineteen thirty, um, which in the world of the Silmarillion is pretty far along. Um, so uh, so yeah, having having Tolkis feel betrayed and turn most resolutely against. Um, no, I'm sorry. It's not in the Valaquenta part. It was in the part about how Tokus ground his teeth whenever Morgoth, uh, whenever Melkor walked by in Valinor after the unchaining. That was the that was the right, right. Um, In that context, is where he says it. But oh, did I say Ase the Hunter? Sorry, I meant Orame the Hunter. My apologies. Uh, thank you for catching. Oh, uh, you know Ase Orame. Whatever eh. you know. Um, uh, so. Uh, Anyway, okay, okay. Uh, but the point is, yes, I, I think that violence is good. So, Dave, this is a very long way of answering, but I think it's an important issue in general for us to be thinking about and how we depict the Valar and, and, and how we do... Because it would be easy for us to say that, like, warfare and violence are simply intrinsically evil and that in a perfect war there would be no violence. There might be no warfare, and the motivations and goals and, you know, the, the, the violence to subjugate others, to exploit others, to assert your, 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 your dominance and subjugate other wills to yours, um, to bring even to enjoy the, the, the pain and the suffering of others. Those are all evil things. But mere violence, I mean, I think, uh, I think that, um, you know, Tolkis would be having sparring matches even if, even if there were no evil. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Lydia's right. There are a whole bunch of sound bites in, uh, in, in, in those speeches that could be taken wildly out of context, uh, con- context. Yeah. Violence is good. I think, I think violence is, is ideal. Anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> so moving forward. Or backwards. I'll say, good thing you're among friends. Yeah, good thing I'm among friends who would never take me out of context. Um, now, Tolkien professor says. <laughs> that's right. Watch out. Island Dave's in charge right. of tweeting today. Be careful. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. <clears throat> um, um, yeah, David Baxter says that uh, eating involves a hefty amount of violence for most people, and it doesn't sound like there are any vegetarians in Middle Earth. David, I would add, vegetarianism involves a lot of violence. Have you ever seen anyone thresh corn for crying out loud? I mean, just because it's violence <laughs> against plants doesn't mean it isn't violent. Um, yeah, I, 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 uh, I often find actually myself to have a, 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 a an almost Tolkienian reaction to uh, vegetarians. Who talk about like I, I I don't like to see creatures suffer, and I'm always like, well, except for the poor plants whose suffering you don't seem to think much of, <laughs> right? As Tolkien says, plants have no advocates, right? You know, lots of people defend the rights of animals. Who defends the rights of plants? Um, anyway, um, so uh, so but 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 you're right, Dave. The point is uh, th- that's exactly. what I mean, I think that again. Orame, not Ase, Orame would be hunting even if uh, even if the world were unfallen. But anyhow, okay. All right. Back to Ase. Do we have Melkor instigate Ase? I think that it seems to be it seems implied by that passage yes. in the published yeah. Million, right? Like 
since yeah. they lead it off with Melkor always hated the seas. Yeah. But what? Am I on? There we go. What about if uh, if it actually gets sparked by Asse? You know, having tantrums in front of you know, going to Melkor and saying, "I just am so upset. I just they never <laughs> let me do what I wanted." To, you know that. So, you know, so it's in other words. It's not Melkor-like looking out and deciding. It's Asse. It's Asse because of Asse's expressing himself, you know, in the way he does to Melkor. Melkor's like, well, I have an idea that might work, you know, you might like. So it kind of still stays with the canon, or hopefully it does, you know, because he comes up with the offer and stuff. But Asse sort of originally instigates it in the sense of through his behavior. Yeah. See, this is another place where, <clears throat> again, it's so much easier to do this in, in a book than it is to do it on screen, because almost all of this process would have to happen internally <clears throat> in in Melkor's mind, right? So, like, I can imagine a sequence in which Melkor is looking out at the sea, right? Maybe he's he's overlooking the coast, and there's a storm at sea, and it's really fine. And, and he just looks at this, and he's like... I dislike this, right? Not because I dislike chaos, he's kind of pro-chaos, but it's not under his control, right? You know, here's right. he's thinking about he's he, he he's thinking about Olmo, right? And so he's already ticked off thinking about Olmo because Olmo is the biggest pain in the neck. And then he's looking around and he's like, yeah. And then look, and here's Ase, right? He doesn't he 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 gives me no respect whatsoever, right? He's just uh, you know, so the sea is totally you know, I'm never gonna I'm you know I, I I have no influence over the sea. Like I'm trying to subjugate everything. I want this world to obey me. And here's Olmo, biggest pain in my neck. And here's Ase who just like rages around doing this stuff and this is really annoying and then this gives him the idea and he's like okay well so maybe what i need to do um is try to destabilize right try to destabilize these ocean people and since ase is uh uh you know is so annoying he's probably annoying to omo too and so therefore if i can if i can (laughs) you know create dissension there i can you know sort of give almost something else to think about. And maybe but you're can... right. Who is Melkor saying this to? Exactly. I mean, That's the problem. Anybody. How do we do this? Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, you could pull a Henry II. Was, it was Henry II, wasn't it? Who will, who will relieve me of this troublesome priest? <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it was. But, um, uh, but we boy, that is thorny. I guess the, I guess the like sinister talking out loud to himself monologue's not really going to fly, right? You could right. have an animal, you know, you could have a big hound or something that he strokes while he talks to the hound. <laughs> <laughs> would this, <laughs> or a cat, like a or Bond a villain? No, he, he would totally have a cat. Okay, Melkor would have to have a cat. He can't have a dog. He has to have a cat. You know, we've got to be we've we've got to remember the spirit of Tavildo. By the way, uh, another right. spoiler: I totally want Tavildo, Prince of Cats, in film film somewhere. Oh. Like, I'm bringing back Tavildo, man. He's got to he's he's got to be even in a cameo. I want Tavildo, Prince of Cats. Not exactly you know, as it's depicted in the Lay of Lathian, but man, ever so often oh, no, these exactly dramatic like, series they do do a lighter episode. So you know, we could plan a lighter episode. <laughs> okay, um, well, hang on a second. We do have one recourse. Oh, okay. You go ahead. You go first. We do have a a, a recourse. And obviously, if we play this card too often, we'll be in trouble. But we do have a a get-out-of-jail-free card we can use. Elrond the Narrator. That is, we cut I back to the frame. I thought of that already. Yes, I thought about it. I was going to bring it up, and I figured you were going to step on me if I did, mainly because I it's it's I can't really defend it. 
Because in my mind, how is Elrond going to know what was going on in Melkor's mind? Well, how are the elves going to know that? It would be, it would be, Karina Alexander is suggesting we just hear his thoughts. Dear Diary, today I was walking by the shore and... Well, you know, he could be talking to Myron, not in a really... <laughs> well, see, you know, that's another argument for bringing way. Sauron into this, is that Sauron and Melkor could have a... I mean, that's the only context in which I can really imagine a conversation being palatable and not way over the top and, and cheesy in one way or the other. Um, well, I, I can still see it as a way for him to be talking to somebody, but not for Sauron to necessarily be taking any action on it. You know but, what I mean? It's uh, like Melkor could talk to him, but not but Sauron. Keep in mind, like, the fact part. that, like, how would Elrond know? Like, I'm fine with that, because, like, listen, I mean, the, all of the stories that we're getting are Elrond's stories, right? So That's true. That's true. Half of it's going to be, you know, yeah. basically El- Elrond's stories are all built on, uh, I mean, none of it is built on eyewitness, I, you know, his own eyewitness account I think yet. it would only be fair, though, to have Estelle ask, how do you know that? How do you know that? And be like, <laughs> uh... Uh, well, we're sort of guessing. Yeah. We're sort of like this is educated guessing. Given this is ed- what happened. I talked to somebody who asked Manway about it. Okay, so uh, <laughs> like, maybe he used. Have to- yeah. Hey, actually, you know, uh, another character that I would want to revive. Um, thinks thinking of uh, Book of Lost Tales characters that I would want to include in film film would be Rumil, uh, the 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 Noldor uh, sage. Um, especially the character that he is, the kind of like uh, uh, really quirky, garrulous, dopey old man that he appears as in uh, in the book of in the in the prologue, the frame tale. Male Iris. Yeah, he's 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 really he's the one who's like talking to the birds. He like speaks all the languages of everything, and oh, he's right. like talking to the birds and 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 threatening to kill it. Anyway, I love Rumil. I think Rumil is really fun, um, but. Um, so, so it, it, what I'm building up to is, uh, uh, you know, Elrond could be like, you know, he, he could talk about his sources, right? Because Elrond, he's a Johnny-come-lately in the First Age, right? He's not seen any of this stuff, nor has he interviewed personally any of the Valar, right? So he would have to have a source. And his source would would ideally be one of the elves who spent a lot of time in Valinor and who interviewed folks. You could say Galadriel, but Círdan, yeah, but he's had limited contact with the other Valar because he never left Middle-earth. So we'd have to have somebody, he'd have to have a Valinorian source who got a lot of this stuff from from them. And I'm thinking, so I'm thinking like, you know, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe Rumil, um, uh, but, um, uh, Anyway, yeah, yeah, whatever. I mean, there's that we we can we can we can we can we can work this out later. Point is, I wouldn't have I wouldn't think that there would be an actual obstacle, like a real obstacle, to bringing this in. If we had, um, we'd have to think of how to do it. It could come in as a question from Estelle. We could transition in at the start of a an episode, either episode. Uh, uh, which one are we up to? Episode nine or episode ten? I'm not sure which. Um, but it could be at the start of an episode where we we ha- we begin with Elrond giving a you know we stay with Elrond and Estelle and and have Elrond narrate Melkor's rationale about the ocean and wanting to cause trouble, and then after that segue into the live action of. I don't think that would be a problem. I mean, we could even have again if doing a if we do that too often, it gets really hokey. Know. But as long as we're sparing with that kind of frame intervention, I would think it would be okay. You know, I don't know if there's a place for it, but 
it would be interesting to also have um, Elrond say what you just said about violence. Like have Estelle say something like, so if it wasn't for Melkor, you know, we wouldn't have violence. And, and Elrond would say, well, no, not necessarily. I don't know if there's actually a place for that, but that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the question could arise, um, but... You know, I don't know if it's it's probably off. You know, yeah, it's I don't know. I mean, yeah, we, it would depend on how 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 we're focusing the these episodes as we move through. Yeah. But that's a question for next time as we think about the actual structure of right. it. Let's just kind of punt that, saying that. I mean, un- unless you guys have a better suggestion than the frame story of how we could. I, I think that's probably, and I don't. I think as if I was watching this as a viewer, I don't think I would have an issue with it. Somebody might. It might cause you know murmurings on social media, which is okay. You know, where some people go, wait a minute, how would Elrond know that? But I think as a viewer, you know, a casual viewer, I wouldn't have a problem with that. Right. Right. Um, well, I think I think in terms of the frame story, if we do it this way, I don't I don't think it has to be implied he knew. It can be more Elrond speculating and, and I right, don't think right. and 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 um, Melkor, at least at least in these types of instances doesn't seem especially comp- complex. <laughs> like trying to figure out what his motives are isn't isn't actually all that yeah. difficult. Yeah. Um, I do wonder if this is an opportunity to try and incorporate Myron into this. Like this maybe come. This is like a topic of discussion during a meeting between Melkor and My- during one of Myron's you know powwows with Melkor, and and either either. It ends there. It just ends with Melkor sort of discussing this with Myron, but potentially this could also be Melkor actually moving Myron to 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 intervene on his behalf. Maybe okay. Myron. <laughs> Wait, right? I've got it. I've got. It. I've got. It. I've got. It. I've got it. This is awesome. Okay, okay. Ase <laughs> is causing problems along the coast and almost sends Sauron out to face. Like, oh man, Ase is messing up the coast over there again. Uh, Myron, would you get out there and f- repair that thing again? For crying out loud, if I've got to repair these coasts one more time, I'm going to have words with those watery gits. And so, so Myron's out there, and Melkor is like there on like the 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 the, the cliffside, not the side of the cliff, on the top of the cliff. When uh, when 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 Myron gets so there's Myron like repairing the coast. And Myron could be annoyed by this. Yes. Why do I always have to be the one to go fix this guy's messes? Right, and then and then Melkor he meets Myron, Melkor there on the coast. Broken again. <laughs> right, exactly. So there, so there's Melkor and Myron. They're standing side by side, looking out at uh, you know Ase, uh, you know beating on things uh, out in the water, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's totally, <laughs> that totally okay. But actually, taking out the taking out the hokey cliff repairing suggestions, um, the idea that they meet on the that like basically this is not a like come over and have tea again and we'll chat uh, again that could right. look kind of hokey you know him coming over and like establishing an appointment with Gothmog to meet with Melkor again but rather the two of them just encounter each other again and to have the two of them encounter each other like on the top of a rocky cliff overlooking the sea would be kind of interesting um, and they could and the two and it, that could easily lead to the two of them having a conversation about Ase. Um, as they're thinking about, um, as they're thinking about, you know, in in the in the course of their conversation, right? If they, you know, again, this is in this stage of Myron thinking more about how he kind of admires how Melkor does things. Maybe Myron is looking out there and being annoyed, 
at Ase, right? Right. Um, because he would like to see him be under control, right? And he kind of would like to control him. And, and Melkor, Melkor comes along and is like, sympathizes. Yeah, I feel you, man. Like this is this is incredibly sloppy, isn't it? Um. Yeah. So then, that could lead either to Myron or to Melkor. You know, th- that could provide us the context for the motivation and the contact, which could. Th- but then somebody would have to make contact with Ase. In order Actually, this this sounds like a this sounds like an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone in storytelling of showing showing the seeds of Myron's fall. Yes. So like we start to see Myron's desire to control one of his peers is is sort of the beginnings of him turning in becoming the next Dark Lord. Like him looking and saying like, "Hey, look at that guy out there doing what he's supposed to be doing, basically, but it annoys me." Right. Um, and I want to make him stop, and I want to be in, tell him what to do and be in charge of him. Yes. So, yeah, so who makes contact with Ase, though? Is good I mean, it would be kind of interesting if it would be another step down Myron's path if he ends up doing this basically at, at Melkor's suggestion. Not because he's loyal to him or anything yet, right? Yeah. It's not because he's been, like, deputed to do this, but you know, Melkor kind of makes a suggestion and he ends up following up the suggestion. Right? Um, So it would be his first step towards doing Melkor's bidding. He's not yet doing his bidding, right? Right. But uh, he's not following an order. But it would be step one towards beginning to follow orders. Um, Right. And uh, they could even talk about Omo. I mean, uh, Myron could be in perfect agreement with... uh, with uh, Melkor about what a what an annoying git Omo is. Yeah, um, I mean nobody likes Omo, except Manway. Manway likes Omo because Manway likes everybody. Um, but uh, but yeah, yeah, which would cause Melkor to look very speculatively at Myron, right? Not to say anything, <laughs> right? Just like right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but how do we have, so I like that idea, but I can't think how on earth Myron would actually say anything to Ase that would lead to his rebellion. That, that is, that seems to be part of the issue, right? Like why on earth would Ase listen to him? (laughs) Right. And why would why would Myron be telling him, "Hey, rebel against Olmo and and yeah, yeah I mean, see, I don't think it can be Myron that does that. I don't think. I so. think Myron can serve as the conversation, you know, foil to to Melkor. But I think Melkor is really the one. And I don't even think Melkor would necessarily tell uh, uh, Myron he's going to do that. I don't think he no. would bring Myron that far into his. No, 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 his, no. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. No, it would just be commi- sort of commiseration. Right. Yeah, no, maybe we should keep the Myron conversation just as a way to both show sort of, uh, you know, the background progression of Myron's character. Right. Uh, you know, one step closer from Myron to being in sympathy with Mel- with Melkor and providing the audience with Melkor's motivation for what he's... Con- so that when we right. see Melkor approaching Ase, we have the context for that and we know what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. Writers get on that. Yeah. Get on that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, let, I, I want to see the dialogue there. That's 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 what I want. Um, okay, so yeah, so this uh, this Ase sequence begins and ends with an awkward dialogue, one between Melkor and Myron, and then the last between uh, Ase and Uinin. But um, so Melkor then has to approach him. How does Melkor approach Ase? I mean, I think you gotta approach Ase directly, or you can't be subtle with Ase. Ase's not a subtle guy. Yeah, right. That's true. Maybe, no. may, maybe in the case of Ase, it really is a temptation. And again, the temptation should not necessarily be for ambition, but as we were saying before, to break inhibitions, right? Like, uh, yes. So are are yeah. we still thinking that they have some kind of conversation? Uh, Ase the, and Melkor? Yes. Melkor's I kind of think, we, I think they have to. Because I'm thinking after the conversation, then Ase might be the one who generates himself. You know, in other words, he shows up at Melkor's front door. Uh, although, what would he say? I, I don't know that he would necessarily have a proposal in mind. I think that he just gets... Okay, here's my thought about what Melkor's actual strategy is here. He gets Ase to break his boundaries and and go wild. And he's hoping that this leads to one of two positive outcomes. Either you know, Ase rebels and ends up uh, uh, throwing um, Olmo's realm into chaos and therefore kind of takes, at least occupies Olmo, or at best takes Olmo out of the picture. Right? In which case he's gotten rid of his number one enemy and that's a win. Or Ase gets smacked down by Olmo and Ase is out of the picture, which is also a win because Ase annoys him, right? So he either gets the big strategic win or he gets the personal satisfaction. E- either Omo or Ase are probably going to go down if he puts them, if he puts them in, uh, in opposition to each other. This, anyway, is what I'm thinking Melkor is thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Of course, Uinin comes in and wrecks the whole thing, and that's, of course, the, 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 the sort of part of the pattern, right? You know, this uh, harmony... You know the 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 kind of harmoni- the kind of harmonizing that Manway wants to do brings together all of these apparently discordant elements into a harmonious whole, which thwarts the plans of evil. Um, so Melkor doesn't get either one of his positive outcomes, and would be frustrated by that. But that would be why he's trying to incite Ase. So basically, all he has to do he doesn't even have to like make a job offer. He doesn't have to do the recruitment speech with Ase. He doesn't have to say, "Serve me," you know, "If you fall down and worship me, and I will give you the whole realm of the sea." All he has to do is say, "Hey, man, cut loose, cut loose." Because if he cuts loose, then Omo's going to come after him. And if if Omo comes after him when Ase is in a cut and loose mood, one of the two good outcomes is going to happen, right? Right, right. So, all he's got to do is a, but he doesn't even have to approach Ase. Um, what if he just makes the suggestion? Okay, so here here's this other uh, here's this other cheesy scenario I'm imagining. Next cheesy scenario is that Ase is coming down the coast, right, in storm. He's just he's he's got so we're showing like a you know a hurricane hitting hitting a shoreline. He's riding a tsunami. Yeah, yeah. Ase is having fun beating on on and and so and he comes along. 
I'm thinking of Melkor giving him an example. Like basically, Melkor does something which transgress, which like breaks Ase's boundaries. Essentially, the, the the idea that I'm thinking of here, Melkor approaches him or like puts himself in Ase's way. Melkor kind of arranges a time when they're at the same, and he just sort of demonstrates the breaking of those boundaries. Like he, he goes and just destroys something. Like Ase is just battering the coast with the storm. And Melkor just like comes in and like blasts it. Um, and Ase's like, "Ooh, way awesome!" Exactly. Ase is like, "Okay, that was kind of cool, right?" Yeah. And 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 basically, Melkor just sort of shows by example and was like, "You know, show me more." Yeah, yeah. you're kind of limiting yourself, man. Like, uh, let's go in for t- maybe a volcano, possibly. I'm thinking, um, I don't know, like something more completely destructive. And uh, yeah, Nick Poazzo just suggested that a volcano encroaching on the sea um and uh and you know basically melkor suggests through his words but even more by his action hey man you're selling yourself short right you're into the violence thing i'm into the violence thing you like chaos i like chaos but i am having 10 times as much fun as you are because i'm not restricting myself to like within your namby-pamby limits uh for my violence and Ase's like that is awesome. I, you know, let's try this unrestrained violence thing, and Melkor encourages him to unrestrained violence, and that's how it, uh, that's how it starts. That, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing? Does that seem, does that seem workable? We could even have Sauron, uh, you know, like, basically Sauron departs and Melkor leaves right from their co- their conversation, right? He's just been talking to Myron. Myron goes back to Valinor. He goes, and then he, like, goes out and starts destroying something, you know, mm-hmm. where, because they're already, they're already looking out at Ase right there. Um, hmm. Okay, good. Yeah, Lydia Putnam has a great question. The question is, how would we keep this from getting back to the other Valar in a way that makes Melkor look suspicious? Well, he would look suspicious. Again, this is why I kind of like Nick's volcano suggestion, because um, volcanoes are kind of his thing anyway, right? Extremes of heat and cold. So, one could still plausibly defend this to say, like, he was just doing his job. This is just Ase, you know, going, going out of control, right? Um, he was looking at what Melkor was doing, and he wanted he wants to cause as much destruction as uh, as Melkor. But Melkor is doing what he's supposed to be doing, right, in his own way. Um, it's extreme heat, right? You know, volcanoes are good. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, but but again, the point is, we're in episode uh, probably ten or eleven or nine or ten at least by now so it's perfectly okay for it to look very suspicious i mean it's it's we've got to move we've got to be moving now relatively quickly to the point where things look really damning for him and where it's only people in denial who are still really thinking that um uh that melkor is okay um yeah yeah so Anyway, does that overall shape make any sense? I think so. Works for me. Certainly, it certainly 
There's something appealing about the idea of, of Melkor using Cat's Paws, if he could somehow get Myron to do this, but it really doesn't make any sense that Ase would... It doesn't make any sense that Ase would listen to Myron, or it's sort of, you know, given that we're setting it up as Myron begrudges Ase's yes. freedom, it makes no sense that Myron would go say, why don't you act even more the way you already are that's annoying me? So right, exactly. This, I think, this, uh, this, I, and also I think maybe, maybe that's too uh, proactive for Myron at this point. Yeah. What we want is to show Myron's desire, his admiration for Melkor, and his desire to act the way Melkor does to to exert influence over over other over the rest of creation to have control, but not not immediately, you know, twisting his mustache and taking off to start manipulating. But Melkor exactly. Yeah. Right. So I think that makes sense. I yeah. think it works. Yeah, we don't we don't want either one of them bursting into the Jedi Temple and slaughtering the younglings yet. Like that's, that's, that's not that's, yet. that's not that's not exactly exactly. <laughs> um just to cite a negative example. So um right, yeah. right. Um I agree. I think that we should save that next step, that cat's paw step in Myron's development for Aule and the Dwarves. I think that that, um, that makes most sense. Now, uh, so would we suggest, okay, wait, now hang on. I got one more Asse question and then I want to, I want to, I want to think bigger picture for a second. Would we th- how do we want to do the... Fun- so we, we have almost a complete outline now of the Asse story, right? Step one is the Myron... You know, first we have the Myron-Melkor conversation where they express their mutual irritation at Asse and how neither of them like the sea and both of them think that Olmo is a git. Then we have Melkor approaching Asse indirectly and encouraging him by example to uh, uh, surpass his boundaries. Then we have Ase surpassing his boundaries and causing chaos. At the down the road, I think, but probably not the next step is then Uin, Uinin, uh, Owen, Uinin. Sorry, here's me screwing up my names again. Uinin, as she is in the published Silmarillion, um, I takes him down and. Uh, puts him in a headlock, right? And they have their conversation, probably while he's being held in a headlock. Um, but I think we need something between them, between that, right? Between Ase starting to go crazy and Uin in break. That is, do we have a reaction in Valinor scene? Do we have an Aule complaining that the land is being wrecked, as is mentioned in the Valaquenta there in the passage that we read? Um, do we have somebody like basically? Do we need a reaction to Ase's uh, rebellion, and so, or maybe it happens in Olmo's uh, place under the ocean, um, mm. in in like the house of Olmo when Olmo is like, oh man, you know, Ase's totally lost it, and Uinen is like, I got this, right? I mean, you know, do we have that kind right. of scene? Um, do we have it happen in Valinor? I, I mean, does Aule come sure. and complain to Olmo? Right, get your people under control. What the heck is going on here? Um, how would we want to handle? Do, do we do, do we just skip it? Do we just have Uinin show up? I kind of think we need some context for her. 
um, some kind of introduction to her so that when she comes we because otherwise it's going to look like some random female character that we've never even seen before coming in and putting Asa in oh, a headlock. Should we have introduced her before now? So, like, like... <laughs> Arguably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because uh, maybe maybe what we show... Because if we have her before, she could, be, she could just be observing and take initiative herself. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe this is a story, maybe maybe this episode is, is we're not making use of the full ensemble, but maybe maybe sort of the initial part of this where we're showing sort of Ase before being manipulated, you know, those are a lot of scenes of Ase and Uyen, um, you know, showing them getting along in harmony, showing sort of what restrained chaos as it's supposed to look, looks like. And then... The turn where he gets out of control is him sort of getting out of sync with her. We could, we, we could make this a love story almost. Yeah. Uh, I was kind of wondering if you could do something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That Showing some earlier interaction between Ase and Uenin would, I think, make the reconciliation, you know, the reconciliation of Asse more powerful. I mean, part, even as we were talking about it before, thinking back to Marie's excellent suggestions earlier on in the episode, um, if, um, if essentially part of the crux of what brings Asse back is essentially Unin's appeal saying, do you want to lose, you know, being without restraints meanings being, means being without companionship. Do you want to lose right. what we have? Right. Um, right. And his de- his decision that you know limits and harmony is worth it, right? Um, and it would we'd certainly, we certainly we would want to set that up by showing that he has. He could even say lose. something like, "Well, I thought you'd come with me," or or you know try to enroll her, and she's like, "No, I don't want uncontrolled, unrestrained chaos." And you know it, it could be that too, like, "Oh, I thought you'd come with me," or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, he's not laughing at me, folks. I think he's laughing at a comment on that. Yeah, I am. I'm laughing at David Baxter berating himself for making Anne of Green Gables comments. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, you are right. Anne first beats Gilbert over the head with her chalkboard. Uh, when for, that is how they meet. when he when he calls her carrots and she beats Actually, him with her chalkboard. That's a really good point. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't thinking of that connection. Anne and Gilbert were not the pair that I had in mind as the obvious foil for Ase and Uenin, but you know, like it kind of works. Actually, that's not I can a see bad it. parallel. I can see it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, just the, the, the juxtaposition of L.M. Montgomery and Ase and Uenin was making me laugh. Um uh, <laughs> well, we, anyway. could do a, we could do a Lizzie and Darcy one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, oh, okay. That means so. If we do this, we need to now an, an excuse for doing this, right? Rather than just having like, and now a sappy interlude with Asa and Uenin, right? An excuse for doing this is to have another Olmo scene. Um. Because if we want to present Olmo as the, uh, you know, the primary antagonist of of uh, of Melkor, we need to keep after that, right? You know, we we need to keep that in people's minds. 
Um, so we're going to need to be returning to Valinor scenes, um, you know, every now and again throughout these episodes, both to show, you know, if we're going to maintain that theme of Manway is increasingly concerned and feels like the world is falling apart around him, uh, we need to build that. We need to show that. Um, we need to have, I think, at least one conversation between him and Varda. We need a conversation between Olmo and, and, and Manway, I think, um, where the two of them are um, disagreeing. Um, and uh, like I said, I, I kind of like the idea of sort of Manway feeling like he's almost being put into a position of having to choose between Olmo and Melkor, basically. And and mm-hmm. the temptation to view this as just a kind of a grudge match between them two, and and his his impulse, therefore his desire, is just to say, "Can't we all get along? I don't want to have to choose between the two of you. There's no reason we should. We, you know, surely we can all be in harmony." Um, so we could have Manway coming to Omo like he came to Melkor. In fact, we could have Manway going from one to the other. We could have him showing up with Aule there in uh, in in Utumno, as we talked about last time. Manway could go like from there to Aule's joint down in the ocean, um, you know, his halls apart down there in the sea, and uh, and have him talk Olmo's to. Omo, what did I say? Aule. Aule. <laughs> Sorry, Omo. Omo. I'm talking about Omo. Ilmir. Sorry. Yeah, Omo. Um, uh, Ilmir is it? Never mind. Um, Olmo is who I'm talking about. Uh, uh, Ilmir is his other name in the Quenta. He's called Ilmir most of the time. Um, uh, but never mind. Um, so he could go down to Olmo's place down under the sea, um, and that's where we could meet Ase and Uinen. But do, but do we st- so would we want then an Olmo Unin scene when Ase um, when Ase goes wild? By the way, I kind of like the idea of Aule lurking in the background throughout these. Right, we already had Aule showing up with Manway at Utumno last last time. If we also have Aule. Visiting and remember, we have justification for this in the text, right? Aule complaining, um, and Uinen going at Aule's um, at Aule's request is what the Valaquenta says. So having Aule then also come to Olmo, um, you know, so Ase goes wild. Aule comes to Olmo and says, you know, would you please? And and Uinen comes in, so we end up having like a three-way conversation between Uinen and Aule and Olmo. And that's what then leads to Uinen's going to uh, uh, Uinen's going to, to fight with and subdue Ase. I am feeling this silence. I don't know if it's stunned silence, skeptical silence. <laughs> no, I think it works. D- yeah? Yeah, I think so. I, I'm not sure if we how to fit all that in to an episode. Well, I mean, we, but are we, we're not are we talking about an episode. Here? We're talking about oh, two episodes, really. We're talking about, right, and right. we're talking about this, actually, we're talking about three episodes, aren't we? 
Um, yes, though I'm thinking L.A. and the uh, the more I think about it, the well, more the I'm, third is L.A. and the Dwarves. That's yeah, right. the more and, I'm thinking L.A. and the Dwarves are really going to take a whole episode. Yeah, that's true. So Asse and Sauron in this two-parter. In this two-parter, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, right. Because, again, it's not just Asse and Sauron. It's, you know, again, we've got to have interspersed with conversations in Valinor. Yep. Um, which are going to be guiding our... And the frame story. And the frame story, yeah, exactly. So um, there's not all that much screen time for Asse and Sauron. Um, Yeah, so the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm thinking that these two episodes, 9 and 10, should be just this stuff that we've been describing here. Um... In these past few episodes, in these in these past couple sessions that we've been having, mm-hmm. and I, as I said, I like embedding Aule throughout this process because that gives us a launching off place for Aule's decision. Right. Um, because I think that Aule's uh, desire to do his thing is in part because basically he becomes convinced. Maybe after Ase's rebellion, so after Uenin takes Ase back under control. Maybe we have Aule and and uh, um, Olmo have another conversation, in which Olmo's like, "See, look, I've been trying to tell everybody. Melko is Melkor is bad news, right? He's he's, um, you know, he is the enemy of the world. Like he has to be. We have to do something about him. We can't just, you know, he's not harmonizing, and he's not gonna harmonize. Um, and Aule could become convinced." And basically, out the transition for Aule from this other stuff to the dwarves is basically Aule saying, "I'm going to do something about it." Remember, his desire to oppose Melkor informs his making of the dwarves. His motivation to make the dwarves is his desire to make things and his desire to have learners to whom he could teach and you know, uh, you know, children that he can. It's his love of and anticipation of the the children of Iluvatar and his impatience that they haven't come yet, combined with his desire to make things. That's the impetus, but it's also informed with he's opposing Melkor, right? And that's why he makes the dwarves tough to endure and 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 all that. Um, so we could actually kind of emphasize that element of it and have, uh, you know, have him going back, you know, anyway, I mean, I'm just thinking, the more we have Oma, or Aule not coming out of nowhere when he when he does the dwarfs, uh, I, the better, I think. The more we can make this seem like part of the continuous and ongoing story. Um, but if we think about that, if we think about this stuff that we've been describing in the last two sessions, the Sauron stuff, the meeting at Otumno, the Ase stuff, um, where would we end episode nine? What 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 would be the arcs of these two episodes? Where would be the breaking point? What happens at the end of uh, what what is happening when we put the to be continued words on the screen? Essentially, not that we literally do that, but do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. What um? But it would and it would be both stories, right? I mean, we'd have um. Both stories would be happening in the first episode, right? Yes. Yes. I guess we could just have Asse's Rebellion, like, 
Ossie tearing it up is what's happening at the end of episode nine. Well, yeah, because Myron's not going to have a full fall right during exactly. this time. So he's almost it's it, Ossie's going to be the main focus. Maybe so, Ossie, yeah, Ossie does the fall at the end of the first episode. So yeah, so so episode one is the build up to his rebellion and culminating in his rebellion, and then. Uh, the following episode is the continuation of the rebellion, then the aftermath and redemption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I'm thinking. If we're doing going to do a two-parter, having the break come at like the the nadir seems to make sense, right? When things look as bad as right. as can be, that's the typical mode, right? When it looks like everything is going to end horribly and everything and, and everyone is about to die, that's when you say to be continued, right? Um, exactly. <laughs> normally, so, 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 help me remember now. That means what stuff goes in episode nine? That would put the trip, the field trip of Manway, Aule, and company, right, including Myron, Oloran, and Kurumo, to Atumno, and the subsequent one-on-one conversation between Manway and Melkor. And the subsequent three-way conversation between the uh, Maiar, who have a problem with this, that that happens in episode nine, right? Mm-hmm. We would then get Manwe and Olmo, uh, plus the introduction to Ase and Uinen. Then we would get Myron and. Melkor meeting on the cliff side or cliff top <laughs> meeting on the cliff side makes me think they're like rock climbing <laughs> while they're having their conversation which really just wouldn't be the same thing um, uh, uh, then we have uh, okay so so then we have the interaction with Ase before between those two things we could we could intersperse something else in there um, like another Valinor scene, for instance. Maybe you like Manway and Varda talking. Um, yeah, actually, I kind of like that. right? We have a conversation between Manway, Manway and Varda in which Manway is expressing some of the stuff I've been talking about, about uh, his fear that things are flying apart, right? His, uh, his fear that you know, chaos is increasing. And then we segue right from there to, uh, you know, to the Melkor teaching Ase how to do chaos better, right? Um, and uh, and then he and then that's the end of episode nine. Does it seem like enough for episode nine? It's, I think so. Yeah. I then do. we start episode ten in Olmo's court. Right, this is Aule coming to Olmo and saying. Do you know what's going on right now? Like, get your people under control. And Uinin says, "I got this." And then I would, if we cut straight to Uinin and and Ase, then uh, it's going to be over too quickly. And we want to, we don't want to leave. That would have that would leave us with no Myron at all in episode. Well, we 10. want some Melkor in it too, right? Yeah, Melkor, we, we do like want some Melkor rejoicing that. Yeah. Um, so, 
so if Myron, we, we kind of left when we decided that Myron wouldn't act as his cat's paw, we kind of left him hanging. Um, what would Myron be thinking and doing during this yeah. whole sequence? While this is yeah, going down, what, right? What's he doing? What's his he involvement? Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, I don't know. Would would he? I mean, is he admiring this, or is he getting, or is he like actually resentful of Melkor for 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 um, turning off say loose? Oh, wait a second. Okay, so I was exp- I was talking about Melkor's strategy, right? The whole okay. set Omo and Ase against each other strategy. Yes. Um. But he's not going to explain that on the cliffside to to no. to Myron. It's not going to be part of the original. Thing. He's not going to be like, and now I shall perpetrate my strategy, right? Instead, right. he's just talking to Myron about how they're both in agreement that Ase is annoying, and they wish everything would be more orderly, namely exactly how they tell them to be. Um, uh, maybe we do get a scene later on. Maybe Myron comes. He seeks. Sauron out, and this would be, and this would be the next step in Sauron's development. He seeks Melkor out one on one for the first time. Right, the first time he meets Melkor, it's in the company of Aule and everybody else there. Um, the second time he meets him, it seems like a chance meeting. Right, um, mm-hmm. you know, he's standing on the cliffside looking out at Asa, and Melkor meets him. The third time, he goes to Otumno one on one. And maybe he goes right. to Autumno to sort of report and tell him what's going on. This is the first time he's acting as Melkor's eyes in Valinor, right? But he does this not because he's betraying them, but he's because they were just talking about Asse, right? So he goes to Melkor and he's like, have you seen what this loser is up to now? Like, this is ridiculous. This is worse than before, right? Right. And Melkor says, you know, you're right. That Asse, he's, a, he's, he's, he's bad. But, you know, if you think about it, this will probably be a good thing. And again, he doesn't say, this was my grand plan. Instead, he, ju- he just says, look, one of two positive outcomes is likely to come of this. Omo, we both know that Omo is, uh, got problems, right? He is a problem. Let's face it. Omo's a problem. And, uh, and, and I'll say we know is a different kind of problem. Well, this is the natural way of things, right? One way or the other, one of those two is going to be less of a problem after this, and then maybe you and I, you know, and then maybe uh, you know some order maybe will be established that you and I can the, appreciate. See the light, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so this is so the development that we get of Sauron's character here is first that um, we're seeing him. Acting as Sar- as Mel- as Melkor's spy, though he doesn't think of it that way, and it's not set up, and he's not been charged to do it or anything. But it's the first time we see him bringing a report from Valinor to Melkor. And the second thing is that Melkor is basically teaching him to think strategically in this way. Um, you know, he's teaching him to to he's showing him how to do the whole like no, let's actually see how let, let's let's think of this situation and think how it will best benefit us and what we want, right? Right. Not in the sense of, I I orchestrated this, right? He won't admit to that. Morgoth won't admit to that. But he teaches, so because that would be too much of a jump all at once. Right, right. But basically he's teaching, he's teaching Sauron yes. to kind of think in this sort of Machiavellian way. 
right. Instruct right, him. Right, right. Instruct him to to look for the opportunity presented by the the current set of circumstances instead yes. of just complaining. Sort of takes on a mentor's role with yes. Myron. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, as uh, Lydia says, sh- showing him how to think of people merely as obstacles or tools. Yes, exactly. Sort of encouraging him in that way of thinking. Um, because that's, that's the, I mean, if, if you want to think about this as, you know, Sauron's path to the dark side, that's a very natural step in that path mm-hmm. to the dark side. But of course, neither one of them are thinking of it consciously in that way. They're just, you know, their way is the right way. And this is, in fact, a good way to bring that way about. Um, so that gives us another scene. And that scene could, in, that, that could interrupt, you know, that, that could you know, interrupt the action and also sort of show us more what's at stake here. Um, you know, we would have seen Melkor intervening, but it would, but in episode nine, it's not obvious why he's doing this and what he has to gain. Exactly. It's only in episode 10 in this conversation with Myron that he reveals, um, that he reveals how he has to gain. And so we, uh, as the viewers begin to sort of see how this was his strategy all along and what he's do- and what he's actually planning to do, um, mm-hmm. then we go back to Ase and we have Uinen come in and we have their reconciliation, right. um, which is a fairly right. long sequence, I would think, because uh, we get mm-hmm. a fight scene first and then we have their dialogue and then um, you know and then he's going to come back and then I, I assume we're going to have to have him and Olmo and you know uh, basically Unin bringing Ase back before Olmo reconciliation yeah. yeah to have a reconciliation there too um, then do we do anything and then maybe, else before uh, we end? switch back to Melkor to show him you know curses foiled again um or Remember, we always have. Uh, we don't have to give. Uh, uh, Melkor doesn't need a cat yet because he still does have Gothmog, right? Um, <laughs> so, the moral of the story is: if you have a Balrog, you don't need a cat. Um, Megan, there you have the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a Balrog, you don't need a cat. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, sorry. Can you tell I'm not a cat person either? I don't know, but anyhow, um, so I it's apologize to cat people. I, um, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> the point is, um, we could. I mean, bringing Myron back for another follow-up conversation, I think, would be too much. Um, no, but we, right. if we wanted to have a curses foil again, or basically how like I can make this work within my ultimate scheme, or like it, you know, if we want to have some reaction from Melkor, uh, he it could be in conversation with Gothmog. I'm kind of lukewarm yeah. on the idea, though. I don't know if we need to return. I'm kind of tempted to return to Valinor instead of to return to Atumno at that That's moment. True. Um, we also have Elrond in our hip pocket. Yeah, we could just return to Rivendell. Yeah, that's also true. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Also, don't forget, you know, some of these scenes, like, you know, maybe one of Melkor looking, you know, being upset, doesn't have to have dialogue in it. You know, it could be, El- as we return to Elrond, uh, to Elrond, there could be a scene of, you know, Melkor uh, destroying furniture in a, in a rage or something. <laughs> but, well, you know, we could have, um, actually, it would be kind of cool if we, uh, 
from the the Omo or the uh, Uenin Ase reconciliation scene, right? The fight scene and then the reconciliation. We can kind of pan back from that to show Melkor on the cliff again, watching this. Happen, right? God. Yeah. Um, right. And either uh, either either grimacing or rolling his eyes or whatever we want him to do. Um. Uh. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now three people have uh, suggested that uh, uh, Gothmog uh, would be a, a, a good name for a cat. I agree. It would be an <laughs> name for a cat. And no, Tim, I will not be won over by any cat. Cats are my enemies. Uh, uh, because at least two members of my family, my wife and my son, are definitely allergic right, violently to cats. Allergic. Yes. Not just allergic. Yes, they, would, but... they would go into anaphylactic shock and die in the presence of cats. So I view cats as, uh, as like unto viruses or malignant vac- bacteria as far as my family is concerned. So uh, that has permanently biased me against cats, I'm afraid. <laughs> but anyway, um, doesn't matter how cute they are, they are still deadly to my family. Um, anyhow, um, uh, uh, that would work. Does this sound like, this sounds like a, this sounds like an outline for nine and 10. We basically have nine and then we can, we can do Aule and the Dwarves in episode 11. Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah. Makes sense to me. Well, you know, we've got some pressure off us too, because Myron's, you know, story is going to be much longer, so we're not not feeling yes. pressured to do anything. Yeah, yeah, we definitely don't need to fit a, a Myron, a full Myron arc in these two episodes by any story. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So this then leaves us episode 11, 12, and 13. So we have three episodes left in the season. We've got to get Aule and the Dwarves. We've got to get Yavanna and the Ents and uh, Man- with Manway and the Eagles, of course. Um, and we've got to get Varda in the stars. We've got to begin transitioning around in the next episode is when we do this, of course, transitioning back around to the children. Hey, by the way, children of Iluvatar on their way, right? We've got to get back to that. Oh, we're getting close. So we, got to, we need to be showing Orome probably. Uh, well, maybe not. If we've, we've already, already had Orome hunting, remember, in the trees episode. Okay, okay. So we, we've, right. we've established his, uh, you know, gallivanting over in Middle-earth already. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um... And, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, we've got plenty to do in three episodes, uh, so far. Uh, definitely plenty to do in three episodes. Um, and after that, we still have our casting. And is there another mop up episode we have in terms of, you know, not episode, not episode? Yeah, we wanted to come back and but... talk about design, um, visual design. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Set that design. we've yeah, mapped yeah, it out design. to talk oh, about, right. uh, Costumes, costuming costumes, sets, all those kinds of things. Sets and casting, yeah. Yeah, right. okay. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, well, it's a good thing we came up with this because you got to go to Middle Earth soon yourself. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's time to it, it's time to sign up. Okay, I think. Oh, but but I have to leave with questions. So the questions clearly for next time are. So obviously, Aule, right? We've got it. How do we transition into Aule and the Dwarves? How do we make Aule and the Dwarves fit into the, you know, the, basically the storyline that we've been developing um, and not just seem like a now for time for something completely different kind of thing? Um, and also, uh, meanwhile, yeah, meanwhile, yeah, under the earth. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. 
I think on that note, um, maybe we can revisit. We we kept saying, oh, well, Ale will just keep popping up in the background of this. Maybe we can talk a little more about that. Like yes. How how has Ale been involved in the in the preceding storylines? Exactly. Yeah. So so it that that discussion may lead us to refocus some of Ale's roles in the in these earlier stories. So yeah, how is Ale involved, and how does his involvement? Uh, we need to make his involvement in the making of the dwarves be a logical culmination of his involvement in all of these discussions, you know, all of these incidents that have been happening. So that's the first and biggest question. How do we get Aule involved? How do we, how do we get to the dwarves from there? Um, and then we need to start thinking, too, about Yavanna and the Ents and the Eagles. How are we going to move into that and how is all of this going to be connected with the coming of the with the coming of the elves with the, with the anticipation of the coming of the firstborn um, those are really vague questions <laughs> for next time um, but basically that's I mean uh, substantially I mean essentially there are the, there are three things right um, ooh I do have a specific question didn't we cop out on the question of what are we going to do with Iluvatar and Aule's conversation? When we were talking about how are we going to depict Iluvatar in Season 0, didn't we kind of punt this question of Aule mm-hmm, and the dwarves mm-hmm. and put it off until we got there? Mm-hmm. Okay, so next we, next session we're it's here. time for the chickens to come back home to roost then on that question. What do we do? Yeah. Okay, so, so how does Aule get into the dwarf-making business in the first place? Question number one. <laughs> question number two... How are we going to handle his repentance, especially, namely his conversation with Iluvatar? And then three, how are we going to transition out of it? How do we get from there to Yavanna and the Ents? Um, and, and again, thinking all of this in the context of the storyline we've been building, all of that needs to fit and not just be a totally independent story. So, um, okay. So those are the... Uh, um, those are the three things we need to focus on for next time. Uh, again, how did he get into the dwarf making business? How are we going to handle his change of heart and you know, in the conversation with Iluvatar? And then how are we going to transition from that into Yavanna and the Ents? All right. So that should be enough to keep us occupied for the next couple weeks. Uh, thanks everybody for all of your uh, your comments today. You guys are really great. We couldn't do this without you. I have been having just more and more fun as we go through the year. I look forward to the next film film episode more and more every time, um, uh, because I am really excited about uh, about this story and about the 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 work that we're doing and thinking through uh, some of these characters and stories. So thanks everybody for uh, for. Uh, coming along on this uh, ride with us and I look forward to our next installment. So two weeks again now until the next time we meet um, and thanks everybody for listening and Godspeed.